Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Carol is a past president of the National Council on Aging, still serves on their board. She's the executive director for the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and you find her all about town and really across this country talking about aging and issues involved in gerontology, a graduate of Trinity University and uh, University of uh, Incarnate Word. Got it right. Yeah, you got it right. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Lots of folks are talking about Social Security, and we actually talked about it a couple of weeks ago on this show, about the new ID card. But you've got some five common myths about Social Security that we ought to know about. Well, that's right. So the new card is a new Medicare card that doesn't have your Social Security number that was the point. on it. Right. Yes. So um, those are going to roll out over a year just for the caregivers listening. Um, there, There is a new Medicare card coming if you or your loved one um, are eligible for Medicare, and it doesn't have the Social Security number on it, so it will not. Someone will not be stealing your identity this time. With the new card. But um, I, I got one of my retirement newsletters, and they had these myths about Social Security. And there really are um, a variety of knowledge about Social Security. We all think we know what it is, but that may not actually be the case. So myth number one is that Social Security is your retirement income. Never going to be enough. Well, and so it was never intended to be retirement income. It was intended to be a floor against poverty. And so it's only going to replace about 40% of your pre-retirement income. Uh, If you are lower income, it's a little bit more. If you're higher income, it's a little bit less. But no, Social Security was always intended to be about a third of your retirement uh, income. And so savings are very, very important um, in other retirement plans. And yet you hear, and there are sad stories, people who that's all they have to live on. That's right. And if you are trying to live on just Social Security, it's going to be very difficult in most cases. Um, myth number two is that you have to start collecting Social Security at age 62. So you become eligible to collect Social Security at age 62, but there, you know, the, the longer you wait, the more your benefit is. You're kind of, um, you need to look at what, how long you think you're going to live, what you want to accomplish in life, you know, what your health is. A lot of people do retire at 62 because for health reasons, they, you know, it's better they stop working. Um, as more and more people uh, retire and they haven't had the really physically demanding jobs, like they haven't been farmers uh, or work in factory assembly lines, repetitive work, um, it, it may be to their benefit to hang on a little longer. And the age is going up to get full retirement benefits. I know I have to wait longer to get my full Social Security. I keep looking at that going, really? To wait longer? Um, uh, another myth is that Social Security benefits, you can't, they don't tax them. Well, that may have been true in the beginning, but since 1983, they actually do tax Social Security. Um, And so you can expect to pay some taxes just like you do on your payroll taxes. Uh, Myth number four, you get an annual cost of living adjustment. So 
you're, you're, I see Ron is looking at me like, yeah. Um, current retirees will tell you that is not always the case. If there's no inflation, which there's there, no, which there no hasn't adjustment. been, yeah, which there hasn't been in a number of years, we're just seeing a little bit of inflation. Um, there's no cost of living adjustment, and the adjustment when it comes is peanuts. Yes, compared to what the real cost of things. Uh, are like groceries right. and gas. Um, and if my spouse or ex-spouse dies, I get their benefit. Well, you probably are eligible uh, for your spouse's benefit when you reach retirement age. Um, but you have to have a disability or you have to be caring for that spouse's dependent child um, if you're going to collect it before your retirement age. So don't count on it. Yeah. So, you know, the Social Security, um, the SSA.gov website actually is a very good website, can answer a lot of your questions. They have a fantastic calculator to figure out what age you might want to retire and collect your Social Security. So check out ssa.gov and get all those Social Security questions answered. And I have found their representatives to be well-trained, compassionate, thorough, very professional. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's true. Early onset Alzheimer's, he rings the warning bell. Early onset Alzheimer's. I ran across this newsletter from the Mayo Clinic, and we don't we talk about Alzheimer's, but we don't usually talk about early onset Alzheimer's. So what is that? You know, um, only about five percent of people develop any symptoms of Alzheimer's before age 65. It's kind of unusual. Um, the, the low end is between ages 30 and 40. That's very rare. But those who do develop early onset Alzheimer's, it's usually in their 50s. I know I had a cousin, his wife developed Alzheimer's in her 30s. Wow. Um, and when you develop it in your 30s, everybody thinks that you're doing things deliberately wrong at work. You know, and they fired her, and it, when they did find out that she had an Alzheimer's diagnosis, then she was eligible for uh, disability payments uh, under their system. Sure. So you just don't expect that. Um, but, you know, usually early onset Alzheimer's means that early onset ran in the family. You had a mother, a grandfather. There are people, multiple people in your family who also got Alzheimer's disease early. Um, and and so if, if that didn't happen to anybody, it, it, the it probably isn't going to happen to you. Um, there's a sort of a myth. Uh, there, I don't know if it's a myth. There's a, a feeling that it, it tends to go faster. I'm one of those people that thinks it does go faster, the progress progression of the disease. There's really no data to back that up in all actuality. No, if, you're, if you're diagnosed at a younger age. Age, right, that it, you know, it, it, it progresses more rapidly. Um, you know, most of that's based on how quickly someone has to enter a facility. And usually, you know, if you're younger, then your family's younger. You may have small kids taking care of parents, more demands. It may right. be. Uh, more difficult, but the but it's critical to get an accurate diagnosis. You can live with Alzheimer's. We're beginning to see, you know, living with cancer, living with Alzheimer's. Maybe your employer can work with you to do a different job and hang on to that income a little bit longer, as well as you know having purposeful life. Uh, and so that's a discussion that you would want to have. Uh, but early onset Alzheimer's, if you think someone um, is acting differently and they are not uh, normal Alzheimer's age, uh, many forms of dementia are reversible. Uh, and so you definitely want to check it out. Anytime someone's personality changes, check it out. Advanced directives. Every WOMED <laughs> doc wants every WOMED patient 
to complete an advanced directive. But what if you have dementia? Well, you know, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services encourage everyone, the doctors, uh, you know, they, to get their patients signed up for an advanced directive. The docs get graded on that. Yeah, and so, you know, what's an advanced directive? That's uh, lining out in advance, that's that power of attorney for health care, um, to, to talk about what you want, what kind of health care wishes you have, because if you don't talk to someone about it, then something happens and, you know, maybe you're a caregiver, you're caring for your loved one, and they don't have an advanced directive, it falls on you. And you may think you can handle that, but it can be very difficult in a crisis situation to try to figure out. You think you know where the papers are. You think you know what your parent wants. Um, and maybe when the come, time comes, you don't feel as confident um, as you would have. But this was an interesting uh, thought that, you know, that look at advanced directives, Jane Brody in the New York Times, because she was talking about, all right, we get advanced directives. But what happens with dementia is that people, you know, may not want to ha- prolong their life if it's not really going to help them um, have a quality of life. And people will continue to eat. Some people will continue to eat. You can feed someone with a spoon um, maybe longer than they would want to. And I know that might be difficult to hear. So we have, we're pretty clear on guidelines around feeding tubes. But because people retain the ability to open their mouth like a little bird <laughs> and take and in food fed. and hydration, um, you know, that they're not making decisions about that kind right. of feeding. And so uh, New York, the state of New York is coming up with a form um, that they hope that it's called End of Life Choices New York, and they're creating advanced directives they hope will be a prototype for the rest of the country for that really lays out your wishes. If you have dementia, um, obviously if someone's enjoying food, they like eating, they're responding to the taste, all of those things, people should keep eating. We're not trying to cut anybody off. But what we are, what they are trying to do is to say people that have dementia before it progresses to the point where they can communicate really need to think through um, what their wishes are in terms of any kind of life extenuating circumstances. Coming up, we talk with Jean Lee, author of Alzheimer's Daughter, a powerful look at a young woman whose mom and dad are diagnosed on the same day. With Alzheimer's. With Alzheimer's disease. That's coming up next. Right. And that's, you know, most of us don't get a double diagnosis in a single day. No. I know how you love robots. And so. <laughs> so you sent me I this article. The, the Amazon Home Robot Story. I know. We, you know, here we are in a caregiving show. And I apologize to all the caregivers for our fascination with robots. But what we're really hoping is that. Um, Someone is going to in- invent a robot that's going to make life so much better. Exactly. Um, and so basically they're saying, how long is it before we have Rosie the robot from the Jetsons? And the answer is we may have robots as early as next year in our home. If you think about um, all the devices that listen to you and answer your questions in your home. Um, but, you know, we're probably about a decade away from having a robot that actually interacts with you and responds to you. You know, have you ever tried to, having a robot pick up a cup of coffee is really difficult and pick up other things. You know, we progress to picking up socks and putting them in the laundry, but... um, Drop a sock, nothing breaks. Yeah, drop a sock and picking up laundry, but we probably have a ways to go before they can do the dishes. Um, So if you're waiting on the domestic robot, stick to the vacuum cleaner. And Naomi File's coming. And Naomi File is coming, and she's coming to do a teleconnection session um, on caregiver teleconnection. So anybody listening... 
can, on May 21st at 1 p.m. Central Time, can listen to Naomi File. And she is very well known for her validation therapy, which improves communication between you and the person with dementia. Very, very talented woman. You're going to want to listen to her if you can't do the 1 o'clock on the 21st, May 21st. Listen to the podcast. Up next, we're going to talk with a woman who's parents both diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She and her sister become their caregiver. That's next on Caregiver SOS On Air with Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel. Here is your chance to lace it up for seniors. The annual 5K or 2.5K run walk for the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Saturday, May 19th, Mission County Park. Just go to wellmedgives.org to register. wellmedgives.org 100% of the money raised goes to support seniors and caregivers in our community. And here's a special treat. The program is capped with a post-race performance by Flaco Jimenez. By the way, seniors 60 and over and kids 10 and under are free. The Run Walk for Seniors, sponsored by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, and I hope to see you there. It is an absolute incredible event with food, music, a kid's play area, even pets are welcome. So bring Fido or Kitty on a leash for the Run Walk for Seniors, 5K or 2.5 on May 19th. Mission County Park, be there. Well, as we have been discussing and promised, we are delighted to bring on our caregiver hotline, Jean Lee, whose book, Alzheimer's Daughter, tells an incredible story. I guess if you, if you had no luck at all, this would be the worst luck of all. Parents diagnosed, Carol, as we've been talking, uh, on the same day, both diagnosed with, with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. And, and just one diagnosis is enough um, to set your world you know, spinning out of kilter. Uh, I can't even imagine two in one day. Neither can I. And yet, that's exactly what happened. And uh, Gene, you changed the names uh, of your folks and yourself in the book, but we're talking about you and your parents. That's correct, yes. Tell us what happened. How uh, That's beginning more toward the end of the story because you knew problems were coming, but I can't imagine sitting in a doctor's office and getting that kind of diagnosis. Hmm. Um. Well, first of all, Ron and Carol, thank you so much for having me today and letting me share my story. Um, And yes, it was um, a devastating blow to have both of them diagnosed on the same day. However, that diagnosis happened at age 86. And at age 80, my sister and I started realizing there were some idiosyncrasies in our parents' uh, mental ability. And my sister lived a thousand miles away, uh, which sounds like a recipe for disaster. However, she was my greatest support. I was the hometown girl. Um, I taught elementary school a mile from their house and lived in that same community. So uh, I was able to stop every day on my way home from work and um, I would always call my sister on the way home and say there are just these odd things happening. And she asked me to start keeping a journal so that when we spoke, I could speak in 
specifics to her, and we could note, note decline in frequencies and that kind of thing. And that journal was very helpful. It was, I wrote it with great guilt, however, because my parents were wonderful parents, and we lived in a home without conflict. Um, I owe who I am to them, for sure, and the way they raised me. So to even begin to write down these things, I felt like such a traitor. And I actually prefaced the journal, which was a little 70-pound, 70 page spiral bound journal from my third grade classroom, I wrote on the front cover that I was only writing these things down to document um, for the sake of helping them. And I threw it in the bottom of my kitchen junk drawer, hoping no one would ever find that journal. What's interesting, some of the things that you document are just so common among other families, mine included. You write that uh, your dad was saying, we're not leaving home, we're fine. I'm an excellent driver. I've never had an accident. Uh, And your sister or you uh, pointed out that a bunch of dings in your dad's car. My dad, in one day, had four accidents, which he claims he had no idea. Yes. You wonder if he drove off (laughs) from all four of them. He drove off from all four. (laughs) Ultimately, the uh, Shaker Heights, Ohio police came to the house and said, uh, Saul, can we talk to you for for just a moment? Uh, Well, you know, uh, Gene, I think you said two pretty remarkable things just in that short little opening. Number one, that you and your sister um, sort of had the presence of mind to document what was going on um, and to be very specific and real with what your family was experiencing because so many times the initial reaction is denial by someone in the family and the fact that you both agreed to this I think is remarkable and then the other is you know it that um, that feeling of guilt or that you were somehow betraying them by you know sort of telling on them about what was going on in the home and that's you know that's really courageous to own up to that it's it's so common but it's really uh, the guilt is common but the courage to talk about it it, you felt like a snitch yeah yes i did what kind of things were you documenting um i was documenting things um like moldy food in the refrigerator uh just mom was not able to do the things that she had always done so seamlessly. Uh, cooking. There was no more cooking happening. They were going to the local restaurant twice a day for meals. Um, my dad was still working in a business, and um, he would sit and, um, when looking at magazines relating to his work he would underline every word and then go back and highlight every word so whereas she was my mom was kind of falling apart her life was becoming disheveled he was trying so hard to keep his together um but they both the beautiful part was that they did decline hand in hand but to go back to your original question, that the blow of having them both diagnosed on the same day, that journal became a key piece in that diagnosis. The doctor and the social worker that I worked with wanted to see that. 
And so that added to my guilt because I, when we went in for that appointment to get the results of their testing, I just had a feeling what it was going to be, and I felt like I had had a major part in that. Right, now hold that, that blow hold, to their lives. Hold that thought for just a minute. I want to remind folks who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zorniel, and we're talking with Jane Lee, whose book, Alzheimer's Daughter, uh, tells the story of uh, her parents, mom and dad, walking down that path uh, toward dementia and ultimately uh, dying of Alzheimer's. And uh, as you write about the day the diagnosis came, you and your sister knew it was Alzheimer's or some form of dementia. Yes, we had that feeling, even though we did not have a formal diagnosis yet. And we were bound and determined to be proactive in the situation on their behalf rather than waiting to react to an accident that might happen to them in the house, that they might fall, something would separate them if one of them fell and broke a hip, or, God forbid, an accident that would happen with someone else. We, we wanted to be proactive to intervene before something like that happened. It was my daily prayer that we could remove them from that danger. And were you successful? I do feel we were. Um, we moved them out of their home, which was just so tough for them. Anyone who's gone through that knows how tough it is. Um, but we did, when we moved them into a senior care facility, and they went on from that point four years together. And something could have so easily separated them prior to that. But they had four I would say happy years together. They always had a happy disposition. And even at the very end where they might not have been able to say their each other's names or certainly weren't able to say my name, they found comfort in having one another there. That was their life, who they were. They were together. So how did you, when you were encouraging them to leave their home behind, you know, was that something they agreed to? Was it difficult? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Um, and we went back and forth, oh, my gosh, probably for six months. Um, we had found a place for them. My dad was a mason. This was a Masonic home. It seemed to be a good fit. Um but they did not think they needed to go there. And we just get them to the point that one of them, one or the other, was saying, okay, yes, I'll go. And then the other would back out and say, no, we're not going. And then that would sway the party who thought it was a positive move, move. It would bring them out of that positivity. So it was my sister and I often said we felt like we were pushing a boulder up a mountain. And we would get to a certain point, and then that boulder would just roll right back over us, and it would all unravel. And no, they weren't going. And my sister was always willing to come to save me. She was willing to be the bad guy, which is hard for the long-distance sibling. You know, they want to come and visit and be the nice person. But when it actually came down to the last possible date that we could move them, with 
the deposit that they had put down, my sister came and said, we are going. And we packed them up and left their home. And I can never thank my sister enough for having my back like that, allowing me to remain the loving caregiver. You talk about how your dad reacted that day they got the diagnosis, and uh, he got very angry. Yes. And he had always been such a peaceful man. I had never seen him really angry like that, but he was just so shocked to his core that someone could say that he had Alzheimer's disease. He, he just stood up in a rage. And I, I was shocked, you know, at their reaction because they were respectful people. You know, a doctor's word was golden in their opinion. They could not face that this was a disease and not their fault, you know, that this was something like if a doctor told you you had heart disease or diabetes, um, you know, they just thought, how dare, how dare someone tell us we have Alzheimer's disease? And honestly, the words Alzheimer's disease were never spoken again after that diagnosis to them. Did you attribute any of that anger to the Alzheimer's disease at the time? Um. No, I didn't. I really didn't. I, I attributed it to their sense of we've always been capable people. And they just could not bring themselves to the thought that their brains were deteriorating. Hold that thought. We come right back to you. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel talking with Jean Lee, her book, Alzheimer's Daughter. We're talking about her journey with her mom and dad down that path toward Alzheimer's. This is Caregiver SOS On Air. Where do you hear us? Right here on 930 AM, The Answer. This is quite a story. We do a lot of shows on not only uh, all forms of uh, dementia, but Alzheimer's as well. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, talking with uh, Jean Locke, uh, elementary school teacher who is documenting the... uh, uh, trials and tribulations of her parents ends up writing a book called Alzheimer's Daughter, uh, which is the summation of all that she and her sister saw. As you think about where you are and what you're doing, uh, Jean Lee, as you think about uh, writing that book, why did you put it down on paper? Mm, boy, that's such a good question because it was so hard to write. It was agony to tell these things because my family had always been. Um, There was a no-gossip rule in our family. You just didn't gossip about anything, and this felt like gossiping to me. However, I I shared this journey with less than a handful of my coworkers, and they said to me, Jean, you should be writing about this. This is so unique that two parents are diagnosed with Alzheimer's on the same day. And I thought, ugh. Forget that. You know, I'm too busy just trying to find the air hole to breathe and write lesson plans. That's never going to happen. But I sat with my dad one week after my mother's passing, and he had absolutely no memory of ever having been married. And they were married for 66 years. Wow. And it, it was at that moment that I thought, wow, this could help someone else 
I'm a teacher. I'm a reader. I read to get through this myself. I read anything that I could find that anyone wrote about a personal experience that would help me face the days to come. And it was at that point that I thought, okay, this does have the potential to help someone else. Well, did you ever have to stop working when you were caring for your parents? Oh, that's another great question. I didn't really have to stop working, but there were many emergency calls that came to me. You know, they'd fallen or they were taken to the hospital, you know, a broken bone or whatever. And so many people have said, was it easier being a teacher and having to deal with that? I would say a lot of things I managed during the summer, but those emergency things you cannot manage. And so it wasn't easy at all to leave a classroom of 25 kids. You know, that took some arranging. I'd have to contact the principal who, they were just so understanding, my employers. And, you know, they'd have to bring a sub in and I'd have to rush out. And so there were days that, for any caregiver, you know, you have to leave unexpectedly. And that's hard for an employer to deal with. Did um, having them in a facility, did that buy you a little bit of time? Was that a little bit of a cushion for you? Yes, definitely, because they would transport them to the hospital and wait until I arrived. And so, yes, there was a safety net there, most certainly, that wouldn't have existed without that. Did you share the story with your students? Oh, how interesting. Um, Yes, when my mother passed, And when I came back to school, I told them, I wanted to be very honest with them, and I told them that my mother had died, and they're third graders. And I said, I I don't want you to be embarrassed to talk to me about this or ask questions, because my mother was almost 90. She led a long and happy life, and I don't feel the way about her dying that you would if your mother died. I said, it's all right. And so that opened up. They were able to ask me anything. And I vividly remember one little girl saying to me, I think my grandma is in heaven with your mother watching you teach me to read. I just... I just thought that was so priceless. I'll always remember that. Very nice. (laughs) And did any of them, uh, did you share the stories involved in uh, dementia and Alzheimer's? And did that touch some of their lives? You know, I didn't go into that a lot. I did tell them what my parents died of, that it was Alzheimer's. Um, I didn't explain that, and I didn't know how much knowledge they had about that. I didn't uh, avoid questions if they asked me, but I didn't elaborate unless they did ask me about it. I'm sure many of them had grandparents going through that or mothers and fathers who were caregivers to um, senior members of their families. So in writing the book, what do you hope other caregivers are going to find in it? Oh, that's a, another great question. I, I think when I published the book, I, I joined a writing group to help me write my story well. And they 
believed in this story. They said, Gene, this will help people. You must publish it. So finally I did. I published it. It took me four years to get the courage up to publish it. And I thought, okay, I've done what you wanted. I've published it. But I really thought and almost hoped that it would hide in the basement of Amazon and grow dust and mold. <laughs> and no. that no one would ever read it because I, had, I felt so guilty about publishing it. And then people started to read it and review it. It has 117 reviews now. And they, those reviews tell me that they, they have, the book has touched hearts, and it gives people a real progression, a real timeline of the disease through the journal. And it shows that families can go through this in a loving and peaceful way for the most part. So that's what I hope the takeaway is. That's interesting. We, I, my, my mother also passed with Alzheimer's, and I was recently um, at home, and we were going through my mother's bookcase. My dad wanted to clean out the room, and my mother and my sister had at the time put together all of these books and read and read everything that had to do with Alzheimer's. Wow. And so my sister, we put together the big stack. She goes, I'm never reading anything about Alzheimer's again. Oh. And tossed, tossed the, the whole stack. And yeah. so, you know, I, th- that's a positive remark for your book because I think at the time as we were going through it, as we were caregivers, it was other people's stories that, you know, that kind of gives you the courage to go on. You can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel and, and it gives you perspective that you may be lacking in the thick of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it's, it's also equally nice to kind of let that go and be at peace, you mm-hmm. know, with everything mm-hmm. that had gone on. And so I think you're writing the book, you know, is also a way of kind of letting that go and being at peace with it. In the aftermath of having written it, I've connected with other authors of Alzheimer's books, and we've created a website called altsauthors.com, and our goal is to accumulate books about Alzheimer's for caregivers, care facilities, geriatric offices, uh, social service agencies, and that has been really healing to have all of those voices come together because the resources are so far flung. It, it's hard to find them. You know, one of the things we talk about here on Caregiver SOS On Air, and for those of you who just joined us, that's who we are, Caregiver SOS On Air with Ron Aaron, Carol Zerniel, and our special guest today, uh, Jean Lee, uh, talking about her book, Alzheimer's Daughter. We, we talk about looking for the humor in caregiving. Because it's so depressing so often, and in your case, both parents struggling with Alzheimer's. And yet, as you look back, there have to be moments that bring a smile to your face. There sure are, and I'll tell you one of them. Uh, Shortly after we got my parents moved into a senior care facility, I would try to go and have dinner with them once a week. And I sat with them um, eating, and (laughs) my mom said to me with with my dad sitting right there beside her she put her hand on his he put his hand over top of hers and they said to me we've decided not to have any more children (laughs) 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 and they were age 87 at that point and on the way on on my way home i called my sister Uh. and i said i hate to break it to you 
but we're not going to have any more brothers or sisters. <laughs> no more brothers and sisters. What a blow. And you had hoped all that time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's great. What did she say to him? You know, I think I was so stunned, I probably just nodded. And, you know, they said this to me as though I was just someone there for dinner with them, and they were talking about their their <laughs> love, you know, their family, and we, we just decided not to have any more children. And it, they were not talking to me as though I was their 60-some-year-old daughter at all. There right. was just no, no cognizance of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, one of the things you seem to have embraced is something else we often talk about, which is live in their world. Gosh, you know, I... I guess you just have to. Um, there is no bringing them to your world, and you just have to meet them where they are. And I was so lucky in that my parents remained happy and pleasant together. One day I went in to see them when they had advanced to the secure memory care unit, you know, that locked right. them in. And I walked in, and my daddy put his arm up. He was sitting in a wheelchair, put his arm up to wave at me. And he said, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> and I knelt down in front of him, you know, smiling. And he said, now, who are you? <laughs> uh, and I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, there is no bringing them to my world. It's just they, they were joyful if they received a smile. That, that was all they needed, was a smile, some happiness at that point. Someone I, to value them where they were. I think that's terrific. I'm, there, That's probably some of the best advice I've heard. Uh, <laughs> you know, it just uh, understanding how far a smile can go when your world gets very, very simple. A smile is a pretty big deal. And they don't always get that in all care facilities or from all family members. And, and I'll be honest with you. Matt, now who are you? That was a punch in the gut. But, you know, I could have broken down and cried, but boy, I didn't. I just left that smile on my face and let them smile back, and we went on to talk about other things. How was your day? You know, it's a beautiful day. The sun is shining, that kind of thing. Now, for folks who are listening who'd like to get a hold of your book, and I know you've been involved in other projects, how do they do that? Well, Alzheimer's Daughter is available on Amazon, and it's available in Kindle and in paperback. Um, so they can search Alzheimer's Daughter on Amazon. And also, Alzheimer's Daughter is just one small voice in altsauthors.com, which is what we've created. And now we now have 150 authors who have written for us the story behind their story. Why did they write their book about Alzheimer's? So that is a, a wealth of information for caregivers who are going through this journey. And, and I might add, in, on altsauthors.com, about 10% of the authors who have written featured posts for us are actually living with a memory impairment themselves. And they uh, are writing their way through that journey. And those are the voices we really need to listen to now. 
That's a, well, that's great, a good point. Yeah. Great resource. Thank you so much for joining us today. I don't think that book is gathering any dust in the bottom of the Amazon <laughs> bin. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Carol and Ron, so much for having me today, and thank you to your listeners. Well, you're a delight to talk to you, Jean, and it's a uh, just a powerful story, so thanks. Thank you. You take care. Bye-bye. Jean Lee, author of Alzheimer's Daughter. That's pretty cool. Well, it's a, you know, it is it's it's a great story, and it's great that someone can walk away and um, feel so positive about a caregiving experience, especially such a difficult one. Up next, take ten with Dr. Jamie Heisman right here on Caregiver SOS on air. Here is your chance to lace it up for seniors. The annual 5K or 2.5K run walk for the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Saturday, May 19th, Mission County Park. Just go to wellmedgives.org to register. wellmedgives.org, 100% of the money raised, goes to support seniors and caregivers in our community. And here's a special treat. The program is capped with a post-race performance by Flaco Jimenez. By the way, seniors 60 and over and kids 10 and under are free. The Run Walk for Seniors, sponsored by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, and I hope to see you there. It is an absolute incredible event with food, music, a kid's play area, even pets are welcome. So bring Fido or Kitty on a leash for the Run Walk for Seniors, 5K or 2.5 on May 19th. Mission County Park, be there. We are so pleased you were with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. At the end of every program, we jump to a segment we call Take 10. It features Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist and expert in addictions and caregiving. Our co-host Carol Zerniel is here, and I'm Ron Aaron. And Carol, you have a topic that when you first threw it out off air to Jamie, it sounds more like combat post-military, PTSD. Well, you know, I recently ran into a family that did have someone in the military that deployed, uh, and but it was for a short period of time. When they came back, they did have PTSD, it, which made me think about the impact of trauma. And, you know, uh, you know we, we've talked to caregivers who've been caregivers for years or family members that have been battling diseases for years um, you can have a single event so I'm just wondering about the nature of um, like PTSD people that suffer after effects from really bad things that happen or things that happen I don't know maybe it's not really bad can you talk a little bit about PTSD and what it is and and you know do we is everything PTSD that I've just been describing this is a great topic, Carol. I'm glad you, you actually got this one because, interesting enough, PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, it's, it's, it's pretty pandemic, if you will, throughout our population, not simply just caregivers, because trauma, which is any sort of episodic event that either occurs to you or you can witness, if you will, like a life-threatening event, um, really happens from childhood on and is often untreated and is often repressed, and people develop symptoms from post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and they may not even know it's that, because it, it all depends upon the intensity of the trauma and how close you are to the trauma, um, and the, the fact is how you were before the trauma. If you had two feet on the ground taking care of yourself, good self-esteem, usually you'll come out of the traumatic period 
in that fashion. But if you weren't taking care of yourself, trauma can debilitate and can um, paralyze. So let me see if I can find an example from childhood. Um, you know, I'll, I'll use my own family. My, you know, my mother was sick off and on when I was a kid. And so we, my sister and I would go for fairly long periods where she wasn't really engaged with us. You know, we were safe. We had food. We had, you know, the things we needed. But she wasn't really emotionally engaged with us because she wasn't well. You know, is that something that, you know, may have left a little stamp on us, whether we knew it or not? Because my sister and I can tell you don't think we have a little mark. Well, it also depends upon the age. What was it? What, how old were you? What was very young. Very, we're talking very young, like so under very five. Young. Okay, it could be a trauma. Again, this is things that the wonder of therapy can help, like peel the onion to find out if it's trauma, because there is definite interventions for trauma. But also, some of the things that you described could also kind of weigh into our personalities and not be trauma. Um, and later on, you know, that feeling of being, let's say, detached or, you know, I hate to use it, but the word abandoned sometimes from a significant other can create personality traits later on. And that's what therapy is all about because it's also treatable and it's, it's something that, that we can actually go within and come out on the bright side. Well, I'm going to go with personality because my husband's noticed I can go all the way from Texas to Wisconsin and not say a word. <laughs> That I'm perfectly content to just sit. I'm someone I can sit for very long periods of time doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, that's interesting because, you know, as a psychologist, um, I can actually treat trauma. There's several ways of doing it. But I did also experience, uh, I'm sure, traumatic events as a child. And so I actually am just like that, too. I kind of repress and I try to manage things around me. And uh, my therapist says, you know, I'm not open with the with the events that happened in childhood like you just were well so if you're if you're a caregiver or you're a you know mm -hmm. a family member of someone who seems to have ptsd and you're thinking why do they have ptsd you know they they weren't gone that long or it didn't seem that traumatic to me i mean that doesn't matter does it it's really about the person it does not matter and i think we should also delineate something which is important because caregivers also suffer from another traumatic experience which is called compassion fatigue and the difference between post-traumatic stress disorder where it's an external trauma either we're involved with or life-threatening event or we're actually we're observing compassion fatigue is from within it's kind of trauma that we've never resolved in ourselves so when a caregiver becomes very burnt out they can also exhibit symptoms of ptsd but instead of being an external trauma it's actually coming from within as an internal trauma. That's the difference between compassion fatigue and post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. Carol Zorniel, our co-host, is here as well. And I'm wondering, for a child, can PTSD be triggered by one event? I'm one of those kids who grew up in the Norman Rockwell world of Everything was great. The cereal was always crisp. The milk was fresh. The The table was set. The strawberries were cut perfectly. God, I hope you had ruffled curtains. Otherwise, I'm going to be we sorely disappointed. We, we and I thought we I thought we were brothers from another mother, but that uh, was exactly the opposite. Oh, no. Everything was just perfect, except that one night when the phone rang in the middle of the night in a house where there was one phone, because why would you need more? Yeah. And if the phone rang in the middle of the night, 
It was never good. And my dad's drugstore was burning down. I remember it like it's happening right now. And that is indelible. And that is untreated, uh, or should I say, maybe you have not gotten in touch with some of the interventions that can deal with trauma. That is exactly a trauma. That is dead on. In fact, we don't even remember, Ron and Carol, you know, much memories before what? Three years old, four years old? Yet trauma can be occurring at childbirth to four years old, and we don't even know, but it gets repressed. And also, by the way, just so you know, uh, theories and data has backed up the fact that trauma, if left untreated, can become intergenerational, which means you kind of hand the symptoms down. For instance, my father is a Holocaust survivor, and he never sought out therapy, and what he did was basically pass a lot of the traumatic symptoms and events down to my sister and myself. So what does that look like when you say passed it down? What does that mean? Well, it's kind of a, it's, it's dysfunction. It really is. It's, it's about codependency where, okay. let's say, our behavior evolves and revolves around either a person who's ill or a person who has trauma, um, and it's not quite authentic. And what we develop is behaviors to be able to manage that person. And then we develop roles in codependency, like the hero, the scapegoat, the mascot. But we're not acting in an authentic way. We're instead kind of responding to untreated trauma in our father or our mother, or like Ron says, even in something that he may have witnessed and, and was a part of, but can't explain today. Right. So what would you say to the people who say, oh, that's hocus pocus, that's, you know, childhood trauma, flee, flee, flee? What would you say to those I people? Do. I'm a huge believer that almost every behavioral health challenge, from addictions to psychiatric issues of depression and bipolar, um, has some undercurrent, underpinning of trauma. I just can't imagine a lifetime at all without some episodic two-by-four hitting us at a time when we least suspect it and us not necessarily getting help for it. So I think that trauma is huge, and our society is looking for ways to obviously treat it. My nephew came back also from Iraq, just like your family member, uh, uh, Carol, and he was there for a short period of time, and he still suffers from PTSD. But it doesn't have to be wartime. It truly doesn't. We see it happening in our lifetimes, just the way Ron described it. So what I'm hearing you say, the bottom line of all this PTSD discussion is, you know, really to kind of get in touch with, if you see someone that seems to have PTSD, or if you have this, you know, anxiety and dysfunction in your life, that, you know, working on it really might help. Absolutely, because what happens is you're going to start drinking, you're going to start medicating it, you're going to look to harm yourself sometimes or others. These are all symptoms of, of trauma, untreated. Uh, you'll pull away from people. you become isolated. I mean, this all seems to mirror what we discuss sometimes with caregiver burnout that then progresses to compassion fatigue. Those symptoms are so similar. But we as therapists really have ways to deal with the trauma. So hope springs eternal. If you do feel you have any of these symptoms, please, please call a trauma-trained therapist. I like that. I'll get a phone number for my wife. <laughs> there you go. For caregiving. That is a trauma. Caregiving counseling. Being married to you. Yeah. She said the other day she's discovered she has no compassion. <laughs> no big deal. Hey, thanks for joining oh, us on this. Dr. Jamie, this was great. Why don't we do it again next week? Love to. Love to. Take 10 right here on Caregiver SOS on Air with Carol Zernell and Ron Aaron. We'll talk with you soon. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. 
presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.